1: lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight an open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Dale Borglum, also known as Ram Dave at my Healing at the Edge podcast channel. And today I am joined by a new friend of mine who is sitting in Toronto. Her name is Charmaine Kachibaya. Close. Why don't you say it? Kachibaya. Okay, that was pretty close. Charmaine contacted me a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, interested in starting something like the Living Dying Project up in Toronto. And she was at a workshop that I've completed over the weekend. I thought that having a conversation with her about conscious dying as a spiritual practice, guiding the dying as a spiritual practice would be really interesting. And beyond that, again and again, I get phone calls or emails from people all around North America, even Europe, saying, I really like what you guys are doing there in California, and I'd like to start up uh, something similar to what the, the Living Dying Project is doing where I'm living. So. We're going to talk about that, and hopefully you'll find it useful. Charmaine.
2: Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I feel really honored to be talking to you today. I've always considered you, since I found your work, a big mentor to me, um, because I think what you're offering uh, by teaching people caregiving as a spiritual practice is is really profound and has really directed my practice a lot.
1: So Thank I'm happy you. happy to be here. So how is it that you came to be interested in working with dying? I mean, I looked at your website. You're interested in dying, but you're also a film producer. Something must have clicked at some point in your life.
2: Yeah. um, So when I was only 20 years old, I was uh, dating a guy. I'd been living with him for two years. So I moved out of the house early. Uh, I was super in love with him. And about two years into our relationship, he died of an accidental overdose. So he had taken some prescription drugs, unfortunately, that um, slowed his nervous system down. And overnight, while I was laying in bed next to him, he passed away. Uh, so the next morning, I woke up next to him. And it was a obviously a very tragic incident. And at 20, I was, of course, not thinking about my own mortality. Hadn't even crossed my mind. To think about death and dying, I had grandparents that had passed away, but that sort of felt appropriate for their age and and the way it had happened. And this just completely rattled me. I dealt with a lot of like post-traumatic stress after that incident. But the worst part about it, I feel like, is that nobody was really prepared to help me through that process. I feel like we live in a pretty death phobic society and that was really highlighted throughout that process obviously my friends that were in their 20s were not able to really be there for me in that capacity and even my parents were really uncomfortable talking about it or or handling the situation um so I was kind of alone in the process uh the process of grieving and the process of trying to understand what death meant and how in such an instant someone's life could just be over um and so that sort of sent me down the path of, you know, exploring spirituality and trying to understand what happens after death and what consciousness is and just dove into a lot of books and reading on my own. Um, but it took me about 10 years to really understand that death is like the, the primary source of understanding spirituality, like remembering mortality comes down to Thinking about it every day and using it as a meditation to really live more fully. Um, and then I came into contact with the, the term and the role of a death doula, someone who companions dying, uh, similar to like what a birth doula would do for a pregnant mother, a death doula would do for someone at the end of life. And once I found that, I was like, this is, this is it for me. Like, this is something I really want to dive into. And so I got, did the training and then was introduced to your work. And ever since then have just been really dedicated to using this as a opportunity for awakening primarily, but also as my service to the world, hopefully because I'm able to look at death and talk about death in an open way. And I think that's, that's kind of rare in our society. these days.
1: So how does this work fit in with your spiritual practice? I uh we've we previously had a conversation about the spiritual path you're on which I find fascinating. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I grew up um Christian in a Christian family. You know, we went to church occasionally. We weren't extremely religious, and so I just didn't have a lot of of knowledge about the true teachings of Christianity or any any spiritual tradition uh growing up. And that is something that I just kind of dove into after Dylan died uh, on my own and was really strengthened also by meeting my husband uh about six years ago he He studied um all sorts of like world religions and comparative religion, and so he and I would talk about this all the time and he would he would teach me a lot about all the different spiritual traditions and then uh we came to the study of gnosis, which is essentially just studying all the all the teachings, all the world teachings, um, but they're true esoteric teaching. And so that, that's that been really powerful in my life. Um, vipassana meditation, I went to a Goenka retreat, a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which really changed my life as well. But I feel like all the teachings talk about death, right, and and remembering death. And so that just became so abundantly clear to me and really, was the driving force for me to want to approach this work as well, because I take my my spiritual practice really seriously and I want to awaken and I want to, you know, remove the eye and ego and all of these things. And I think, you know, some of the most profound experiences I've, I've had were around death uh, and I was able to be most free in those moments. I most recently just companioned my dad through Alzheimer's and his, and his eventual death and, some of the meditations I had with him bedside were the most powerful meditations I've ever had in my life. So it really bolstered me in, in knowing that this practice is is really, really, really powerful.
1: So I've got a very strong sense that the most powerful powerful spiritual practice that during this kind of confusing age in which we're living is having an intimate. Relationship with death combined with a, a strong contemplative practice. There are people that meditate a lot that aren't really in touch with their their mortality, and you can meditate till your knees fall off. But if you really don't know deep inside you're going to die, I think meditation tends to stay on the surface. And on on the same time, at the same time, there are people who are uh, have a very intimate relationship with death. Nurses, caregivers. Who don't have an inner practice, and uh, the relationship with death then is just sort of like, sort of like glorified social work, and so bringing these two together, I find is a is a really uh, core practice. And my confession is that I'm not that interested in dying itself. I'm interested in awakening, and somehow being around. People who are dying more and more at a very subconscious level gets me to know that I'm going to die too. And in fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the main contemplations is contemplating the truth you're going to die, but you don't know when. So if we really knew that as we were talking now, then uh, what we looked like and how the talk was going and all those kinds of things aren't nearly as important as how connected can Charmaine and I, you and I be in this moment? How how much can we be dying into the next moment? And my experience is that and I think it might be slightly personal because I have a certain kind of personality that maybe you don't or other people don't, but for me, this basic core fear of death is what leads to all the other emotions that keep me separated and I identified with my separateness. So Uh, there's kind of two conversations we can have here. One is about the the more theoretical using interaction with death and dying as a way of awakening. And the other is how someone in Toronto or anywhere besides the Bay area could uh, begin to do this work. And in, in relationship to that second question, uh, I honestly think that the way things are arranged, particularly in America, I'm not quite as up on what's going on in Canada, but just the way things are funded, it's very difficult for somebody to start an organization and make a living unless you have all the right initials after your name. Mm-hmm. Where you're saying I'm gonna I'm gonna start an organization and I'm going to support people dying and I'm going to do it in a conscious way. I mean, I've had the great advantage of starting this with Stephen Levine and with Ramdas, who are really the founders of conscious dying in the West. And still, it's an ongoing struggle for fundraising and, and uh, keeping our name out there in public. I have a PhD, but it's in mathematics. So it's like, I don't get any funding from the government or from insurance companies for what it is that I'm doing. So uh, have you thought at all about how you might go about starting? Uh,
2: yeah, I think that's so, like that's the hard part, especially what you're saying about not having all the initials behind uh, your name or anything. For, for me personally, I don't have any formal training to be able to to work with the dying right um i just have a willingness to do it and something that i i I say on my website is like i think that companioning the dying and and witnessing death and, and being there for the dying isn't something that you need formal training for it's something that you know culturally we have lost but it has just it's something families used to do for one another um and so i don't think there's a need for for that training but it does present an issue when you try to uh promote yourself or put yourself out there in society and and people are like well why would I trust this young girl to help me through this process like what does she know right so it has created a bit of um a challenge in that um to, to how to go about it and how to really gain people's trust. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a very, you know, grassroots approach where you just work with people that have witnessed you go through these things, potentially friends, family, friends, and build from there. But I'm still like a fledgling business, right. Where I'm just, just have put myself out there, which is why I've, uh, you know, reached out to you because I, I do want to know if it's something that I can do as a career if it's just something I should treat more as um, a spiritual practice and and a hobby in a sense something I do in my spare time because there's so many um, trainings now for death doulas people are becoming I think really interested in and looking at at this stuff and then there's all these training programs but they're not really accredited and but there's a huge willingness and a huge community trying trying to make this work and I know they were able to do it sort of in the, in the birth, birth doula sphere in the seventies. Right. So their approach is similar and hopeful that, you know, with the baby boomers, with more people going into their time of dying, that there will be a a resurgence of, of people that are able to care for them at the end of life in the same way that they would maybe hire a birth doula when they were having children. So um that's kind of the goal but everything that I've heard from other death doulas and people trying this is that they're not making any money doing it. Um,
1: right. Death as a hobby is a rather remarkable notion. <laughs> <laughs> I feel
2: like, I, feel like you- I know
1: what you mean. I'm kind of I'm kind of kidding you I, something you're doing on the side.
2: Yeah, but I mean I think that even if you're working with a dying even while I was watching my dad die slowly in front of me over 4 months like you forget that, you know, sort of like you said, like if you're with dying on a regular basis, it can just be work and you can just be doing it and going through the motions. And you've also told me before, um, death isn't this like miraculous, amazingly spiritual experience. Most of the time, it's just this mundane experience of being with another person. Uh, And so I feel like it's so easy to forget your mortality. And for me, it's easy to do that even in the presence of a dying person. So any opportunity that I can to like, look at that and face it day to day is going to help me uh, because it's just so easy to forget and start being unconscious. Right. So a glorified hobby.
1: (laughs) So uh, the other point here is that even if you do have initials after your name, it doesn't really imply to me that somebody's going to be good at, being a death doula, that I don't really feel that I can train somebody in a weekend or 10 weekends to transmute their fear of death so that they can be with somebody else who's dying. And to the extent that I'm with somebody who's dying and my my own fear is unexamined uh, in the past, but particularly in the moment, uh, I'm not going to be able to really guide at a very deep kind of level so that, that being a guide to the dying, a, a, a guide to conscious dying is not about information. It's not about knowing more stuff. I mean, certainly there are a few practices that I, I teach in workshops and certain attitudes, but most of it is how much in your life up to this moment, have you grown comfortable in dying into the next moment, to realizing that Uh, no matter what the emotion is that's arising, if it's a pleasant one, an unpleasant one, a neutral one, how painful or unpainful the pleasant the uh, sensations in the body are that might be arising, uh, that we're not just caught in the content, we're not even caught in our loving relationship with what's going on, but what is the nature of things? What is the tantric nature? What is... uh, how real is our identification with our body and our personality? And is there something that doesn't die? I mean, are we are we pure consciousness that has this body or are we a body that the brain is just creating the mind and everything? And I, I certainly think it's the first of those two. But we live in a society that is very much caught up in this Western model of we're solid and there's, there is there is an objective reality out there mm-hmm. that uh, everybody is seeing the same objective reality out there and that death is completely real. And the people who are in charge of organizations pretty much believe that worldview, whereas modern quantum mechanics and ancient tantric wisdom say it's the other way around, that that consciousness flowing through us, creating reality, that that death is certainly real in the sense that the body dies, but that consciousness doesn't die. Mm-hmm. So that that this combination of deep meditation and intimacy with death is this remarkable opportunity to see that. And in fact... When what for me when I'm around somebody who's dying and it, the places I still pull back it becomes so much more apparent because I don't know if I'm going to be with that person again it hurts my heart to not be fully present for somebody who not who might not be around the next time I show up.
2: Yeah, I feel like you know the question who dies is is such an important question and i'm I'm realizing every day more and more like the, the conditioning that I want to to die and in myself and and all of these concepts. And I feel like witnessing my father's dementia, you, you said something really powerful in one of your workshops was like, um, dementia is like somewhat of a gift, right? That, that life gives you this opportunity to shed all of this this uh, conditioning and the egos and the things inside of you that aren't really truly you. Um, I've really noticed that anything that we hold on to, like death will rip away from us, right? You know, we can either put it down gracefully, uh, day by day, or it's going to be taken from us anyway, because all of these things aren't truly our being, um, and consciousness. And it's the, the idea that death is the, the final end that is, is the illusion. And so, you know, while there's pain and suffering and letting go of these things that you considered yourself, um, there's also freedom in it and, and learning how to, how to do that, I think is, is so important and it's and paramount and actually being able to, like you said, sit at the bed of someone and not retract and, you know, you know, learn to be grounded, which you get some amazing, uh, guided grounding meditations that have helped me immensely. And, learning to be safe enough to open my heart to that suffering and to that painful process of letting go.
1: So what I find is that because I'm not an an enlightened being yet, when I am around somebody who's dying, it does uncover places in me where I pull back into separateness. And then the question is, can I be a living model of, yeah, even though I get caught in my suffering occasionally I'm willing to work with that. I don't have to pretend to myself that everything's other than it is. That that uh here we are you might be closer to dying than I am we don't know that but very probably because of your medical situation here but I'm going through stuff too so I'm uh I'm working with dying moment to moment to moment and then are my actions coming out of Faith in the Dharma, faith in God, faith in who I am, or are my actions coming out of trying to push the fear away? And there's a subtle but very distinct different, difference in feeling between when I'm really operating from that sense of trust and when I'm not. And to the extent that you're with somebody who's dying and you're 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 trusting mindfulness and compassion and the, the tantric re- nature of reality, then it doesn't really matter too much what you say or what you do. It's, it's that, that quality of beingness. Uh, when suffering arises, we can push it away, we can get lost in it, or we, we can open to it. And Very often when somebody's dying, they're surrounded by people who are pushing away the suffering because they're pushing away their own fear of death or they're getting lost in their own fear of death. And if if just one person in the environment can be again and again dissolving into spaciousness, Mm -hmm. trusting the boundless nature of the heart-mind, trusting that their faith in God is stronger than their fear of death, Mm -hmm. then it's a profound gift for the person who's in that body in that bed.
2: Mm -hmm. I love that. Trusting that your faith in God is stronger than your your fear of death. I feel like that's... That's such a, that's the ultimate goal, I think, for me is to have that strong faith and to remember that every time that I encounter my own suffering, that it's an opportunity for transformation um, and that there's a point to suffering um, if we do, if we do so consciously, right? Yeah. And I think that the the concept of conscious dying is, is so foreign to a lot of people. Um, for example, I don't want to put her on blast, but my mom's like, you know, I don't want to be there for my dying. Like, why would anyone want to not just be heavily medicated and to be asleep while you're dying? You know, and I think that that whole concept comes from, you know, not understanding the, the point of conscious suffering in general, um, and how important that is to me in my life on a daily basis. And I think it takes, you know, certain people or special people to, to want to go into that suffering consciously uh, but the, the results and the the things that you can achieve through that are, are endless and I, I do I do wonder and I I wanted to ask you you know I, I find that there's more you said even uh, with the living dying project often you'll have more volunteers than than uh, people that you're you're serving and I find a lot of death doulas in this uh, industry are are having that same issue, right? They want to work and they want to help people, but there's just not a lot of people reaching out. So I don't really know how to approach that. If it's just the concept of conscious dying that sort of gives people a startle, but it is a bit of a challenge.
1: Well, I think it's difficult for people to reach out to a stranger at a time of great vulnerability. Yeah. and often often create confusion. Uh, in the beginning, when I first started doing this work here in California, we did get a lot of referrals from the hospice and the hospital. But as time has gone on, at least here in Northern California, which is maybe a unique situation, a lot of these institutions have their own spiritual care departments now. And uh, when Ramdas and Stephen and I first started doing this back in Santa Cruz and then in Santa Fe we thought this is this great idea it's going to it's it's such a an appropriate notion for the time that it's going to spread like wildfire that we were going to be the colonel sanders of death and that there would be a dying center in every medium-sized community in America and right now there's almost none that we really underestimated how deeply embedded fear of death is in our society so You know, it may be that that the the COVID pandemic has shaken things up a bit. It may be that the political situation in America and the divisiveness and the fear that's being uncovered by the way Republicans and Democrats are looking at each other, uh, relating to each other. I know it's not quite the same in Canada, but we're living at a time now between climate change and politics and COVID and economics and migration and all these things. The world is really in upheaval. So whether it's even physical death or death of our concepts, holding on tightly. When I watch people have political conversations, people are holding on so tightly to who they think they are that communication isn't happening. And uh, once again, all of this can eventually be when you peel away the layers of the anger and the sadness and the confusion, underneath it all is this fear of death. Yeah. So uh, as much suffering as COVID has created, how many hundreds of thousands of people have died, at the same time, it might be exactly what the planet needs. It might be what the, the environment needs, is that, that people begin to take a step back and say, what's really important? What is your motivation? What do you really want? And when when we're talking about finding clients, to me, the, the basic question is, does somebody want to be free or do they want to be happy? Mm-hmm. And it, like your mother doesn't want to be there when she's dying because she thinks it's going to be an unhappy situation. There's going to be maybe pain or confusion or fear. And as far as I'm concerned, she has every right to feel that. It's not my job to change your mind, but I want to be there. I mean, I had major surgeries where almost everybody gets completely put, uh, as a, I don't know what they say, but it, go completely unconscious with, uh, anesthesia. And I told them, I want to stay awake. I want to, I want to be there while you guys are doing this. So I just had a spinal. And, uh, so how, how alive do you want to be? How awake do you want to be? Yeah. And if you say, I, I really want to be awake, then opening to dying is part of that opening, that, 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 that awakening, that uh, holistic health often has a big hole in it, mm-hmm. which is the opening to death. I mean, yeah. instead of so often holistic health is throwing herbs and massage and all kinds of holistic treatments uh, with the same attitude as we've got to push death away, death, bad, death, bad. Yeah. Uh, and I'm certainly not saying we should just say, okay, I'm ready to die. But uh, can we get to the place where we are in some kind of harmony with, I'm in touch with with, with consciousness itself, that I'm, I realize I've got a body, I realize I've got a personality, and at times it's kind of uh, sticky and I get identified with it, but uh, that every time we we drop into this openness, this boundless nature of existence, whether it's through being around dying, or taking psychedelic drugs, or going deeply into meditation, or falling in love with somebody, Mm -hmm. every time we do that it begins, we become more familiar with the spaciousness, the boundlessness. And uh, to me, I feel it's been such a great gift in my life that I've been able to be around so many people who are uh, near the end of life. One of my favorite throwaway lines is, almost without exception, the most beautiful Americans I've ever met are people who are almost dead. Yeah because they're willing to be themselves they They don't care about how much money do I have, or how good looking am I or whatever. It's just like, uh, naked existence in a certain way.
2: Yeah. I, I found the same, you know, with my father and his dementia, like the, the ability to be present and someone with dementia is, is magnificent. Like it's unsettling that maybe they don't understand who you are and, and you've been a you know in their family forever but this concept where they they don't even consider they're just where they are in that moment uh, that was that was really eye-opening for me and I I do understand what you say about like holistic care and, and all of these things because I feel like a lot of palliative care or hospice is is just based on comfort care um, and to me I think there's so much more than just making the person comfortable obviously i understand that that's important but there there's more work to do i think in that space as well and it and it's like you said they almost treat death as the enemy and like a fa- you're a failure if you die um and so i think like turning that around in our minds is is a really important is an important thing
1: So it it does make me sad that somebody who is as committed as you and has this perfect background in a way with your deep meditation practice has a hard time creating a life where doing this work is a major part of your life. Yeah. And... uh It's been frustrating. I mean, I've talked to so many people, even even doctors, who say I'm so I'm so done with being a doctor in the old way. I I just like to have a job where I'm taking care of dying people, but not as part of these big institutions. And even physicians have a hard time finding a way that feels comfortable. Yeah. Sometimes, so uh, hospice started out as a spiritual movement in England. And when it first came to North America, it was basically a spiritual movement. But as time has gone on and it's more and more having to be funded by the federal government and the third party insurance payments, maybe it's a little bit different in Canada, but I would imagine it's pretty much the same thing. And it's becoming very structural in a certain way that the, the medical part and the social work part take priority and the spiritual part, if there's a little money left over, then maybe we can hire somebody to be a nice spiritual person. And at the same time, it's been like since the late 1970s. So that's like 40 plus years that this conscious dying movement has been going on. And between me and Ramdas and Stephen and Frank Oostazesky and Joan Halifax and Stephen Jenkinson and so many other people, there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who have taken these workshops yeah. who are, who are embedded in hospitals and hospices and just in communities, maybe not even medically, who are yeah. able to begin to do this work. Okay. And I think that, the more we we talk about it and bring it out there, it will attract like-minded souls. Whether it attracts funding is uh, is is a, uh, another question that I don't have quite so much faith in.
2: Yeah, and I think you're right. I, I do feel like this is a response to, to you know the the loss of that spiritual component to to this work and. Um, you know, I think that's just the way things work. Sometimes when there is funding, then comes regulations and things of that nature. So I've also been very open to the idea of, you know, just doing this for donation only, and hoping to just keep that spiritual component as as the main as the main driving force in doing this work. And you know, that's why I'm so grateful that you had me on this podcast today too, because I think you're right. It's just a matter of talking about it and carving out a space for it you know there is a lot of people that have been studying under you and Stephen jenkinson and all these different uh desk doula training workshops and there's death cafes and there's all these there are people talking about this so hopefully it just takes a little while and the ball is starts rolling and you know i pray that you know people reach out to me and that i can i can do this work and hopefully become a more awake person because of it realistically
1: the other point I'd really like to make is that a lot of our conversation is kind of uh, pointed toward supporting an individual person. Mm. You're at the bedside, I'm at the bedside, there's your dad, there's a client I have. But at the same time, there's this collective that that America is sick, the planet is sick, uh, and hopefully it doesn't die. But at the same time, this underlying, so let me start that sentence over. One could donate to Amnesty International or Oxfam. One could try to deal with hunger or homelessness or racism or whatever it might be. But as long as there's this underlying fear of death, that these these problems are going to keep popping up because they're based in people feeling they need to protect themselves, that it's not a safe place, that all those kinds of things. So that it isn't just working with one dying person, but it's also having a conversation about the collective fear of death, the collective pulling back from our society being willing to uh, look death in the face, or death in the the heart, or whatever it is, and and relax. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, and then that some of all these difficult things that are going on now are probably incredibly necessary.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. We're kind of in they say the the sixth great extinction, right? Like this is a dying time in a sense of concepts, like you were saying, and and ways of living and you know, I do think the silver lining of the pandemic has been a lot of people releasing identities that they had through work and other things that have been sort of ripped away from them. Um, And so like I, I said, and I kind of discovered through my own like meditation and spiritual practice, I realized if I don't like set these things down gracefully, death will come rip it out of my hands at the end. And and I think that's kind of what we're experiencing on a collective, right? is you know, we've had all these attachments for so long, and we're so terrified of letting letting go of all these things. Uh, and so it's kind of just we're feeling out of our hands and we're we're having to to deal with to deal with the suffering that comes from that, but also having an opportunity to to really become who we truly are. Um, so I am hopeful, and I do think it is timely. I think it's always been timely uh, as all the spiritual traditions have said, but I feel like, especially right now, we're going through a really transformative uh, period cyclically, I think. Um, And so, yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful. And, you know, even if I don't ever get to be bedside with another dying person, like you said, the work is really in dying every day. How much more can I do that every single day? Um and sort of being a late living example of that is is the most important thing, I think.
1: And to the extent we're pulling back from dying, we're unable to love. that love and death have some very intimate connection. So the more we can love, then then dying is another moment of loving, and the less we can love, then dying becomes very frightening. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask if you have any final remarks you'd like to put on this recording?
2: Um, I would just like you to share uh, on this recording your equation that you came up with about all all debt are all fear being ultimately fear of death because that was profound for me when I first heard you say it. And it's something that's become somewhat of a mantra to me. Like I notice any time that I, you know, am nervous before our call today, or any time that I'm in, in my mind and can't drop down into my belly, it's it's that, you know, fear of separateness, right? Which is fear of death. So I'd love you to just describe that a little more.
1: Okay, so Charmaine is asking me to exp- uh, reveal my nerdiness. as a recovering mathematician. And this equation I came up with that all fear equals fear of death. It's basically based in fear of death. And fear of death is exactly the place we're not enlightened. So where we're afraid, where we're lost in fear, we're suffering. And the Buddha said there are two kinds of suffering, suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that brings an end to suffering. We would like our suffering to be that second kind of suffering that brings an end to suffering. And that, that's conscious suffering. That's where when we're suffering, when we're lost in our fear, we're able to be with what that feels like in the body, letting go of the trigger. It's not that I'm afraid of this situation or that person, but right now I feel fear in my body. I let go of the narrative. I'm willing to meet it in a very intimate and direct, almost naked way. And beyond that, after I meet it and, and get much more familiar with how suffering is arising and being created, can I open my heart to that? Can I have a, a heartfelt, compassionate, boundless heart relationship with what it is that's going on right now? And to the extent we can do that, then we're transmuting fear of death where we're opening to life in a much more direct and passionate way.
2: Mm. Yeah. I'm so grateful for you like I, I feel like every time I hear you speak or attend a workshop or, or get an opportunity to talk to you things open up for me and so I feel like you're such a champion for for everyone like myself that's working on awakening or interested in the death and dying as a spiritual practice. So I feel like this will be such a great thing that I can share with like fellow death doulas and, and people um, as well as just friends and family. So I'm really grateful for you speaking to me because you've been so generous with your time with me and I consider you such a mentor. So
1: Well, I'm grateful for the work you're doing in, in Toronto and for the the work you've done in your life that has brought you to this place of openness. And I hope that our friendship will flourish and that both of the works that you do and I do will serve many, many people. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Charmaine. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Dale.
1: Take care.